0: Now you know on some of those trailers too, the door actually opens out as opposed to in. Was this one of those that opened out?
1: Yes. So they all yeah, you're right. But big old leg on that day. Yeah, right? you can so, yeah, you can
0: punch <laughs> it through that opening.
1: Got, right. And again, there's not a lot to the to the structure surrounding that door. So I kick it and I go through and my leg like hyperextends and my knee pops and my ankle gun that's in a holster for a three eighty. Not you know, not the make and model of the ankle gun that's inside it leaves its holster and shoots out the bottom of my pant leg into the trailer. Now, like you said, those trailer doors, a lot of them pull open; they don't push in. So when I kicked it so hard, when it hit the back wall, it bounces off, comes back, and catches the frame because it is a pull open door and shuts itself again. So right in front of me. And, and my ankle you just kind. armed the guy inside the house. Yes. So my sergeant, they're like pushing me in the stack. Go, go, go. And I'm like, wait a minute.
2: And you're getting the inside information on the criminal organization, which, you know, it's like, it's like opening up a special box of information that now you're, man, you're, you know, balls of all, full speed ahead. Here we go. right
1: And you know better than anybody in your time in the DEA, like, there's no better way to understand why crime exists than getting inside the head of these high level drug dealers, because those drug organizations basically fuel, what, 90% of crime, you know? Uh,
2: Drugs is involved in almost everything. Yeah,
1: I mean, you take away your serial killers and your passion murders and all that stuff. You're left with crime that goes back to high level drug trafficking. And uh, so that's what I love the most about my time there. I feel like if you're going to be the perfect cop, you have to spend some time in that world because you have a more thorough understanding. Not that you can't be an awesome. There's been awesome cops who've not done that kind of work, but it does really help shape you to be the perfect cop because now you know exactly why crime happens you know how to get inside these people's heads when you when you interview them? Well,
0: but you know, the important thing is you know how they think. You, you That's the whole yes. thing. Uh, you know, I always, I do some talks talking about adversaries like Russia, China, I say, but the biggest thing is the problem isn't the problem. The problem isn't the way we think about the problem. The only problem that matters is the way our adversaries think about the problem. It doesn't matter how I think about it. How is this guy thinking about it? How is this girl thinking about it? That's why there's so many ways to get away with crimes because we go, gee, I never thought of that. That's why you got criminals because they're thinking Think, especially when they're on the inside doing time, they got nothing but time to think about how they're going to do
2: shit. Oh, right? Man. That's, you want to get inside the criminal's head, determining what the motivating factor is. What's if motive for committing the crime? You know that will that just that. That's like giving you a ten percent or twenty percent advantage on the investigation, right there. If you know what the motive is.
1: Yeah, one hundred percent. And by the way, to hear how many calls come from inside a prison.
2: You know, people. and they know they're being recorded. Yeah, yeah, they
1: know it. <laughs> <laughs> they know it. Don't you just want
0: to get on these calls sometime and go, "You idiots! You know we're fucking listening, don't you?" Yeah, yeah, but you're not going to do anything. So, Fred, I need you to whack this guy for me.
1: It's I so it. dumb. Uh, my favorite was the Nxtels when in the era of the 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 idea. Yeah, yeah. So, it was yeah. you push a button? Only one of you could talk at at, at a time, right? And for some reason, the, the idiot criminals thought. Well, you the the feds can't wiretap those, they thought. And so we would we'd get these wiretaps up on these nextel phones, and you could hear them. Hey, 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 hey shut shut the fuck up. Direct connect me if you're going to do that. So they thought, okay, that walkie-talkie mode, you can't hear it. Well, not only can you hear it. It's perfect for transcribing because now you your dumbasses can't talk over each other. Only you so, can
0: talk at a time. And then right. it's like,
1: over? Oh,
0: your turn, it's over? So
1: much easier to understand. Yeah. We we had a case. It was a crazy one. And it was a, a, a Nextel case like that. And it was the one particular one where the guy was – it was so funny because he was just brag and try to teach all his friends by these kind of phones. You know, We were listening to this and transcribing it. But uh, one time his girlfriend calls and he's she's in a panic and she says hey the cops just hit us and we're like holy shit you know we're we've been working this case we got all this time and money into it we're trying to work our way up and they just got hit by the cops this could screw up our whole case right and so he's like uh well did they leave the paperwork he's a hispanic guy and she's like uh no so he knows they're supposed to leave a search warrant return and uh she says no, and he said they leave no. Pay- Did they show any paperwork? And she's like, no. I didn't even ask. They just barged in, said they had a search warrant, and then they, for some reason they knew exactly to go to the attic and go in there, and they grabbed all the money, and they left. These were some Indianapolis cops. Now this wiretap we're working with is a Indianapolis case. They brought it to us. Their drug unit brought it to us, and during the briefing, there was two of their undercover guys. There who got briefed in, so they got read into the case, what was going on, and then for some reason um, had an excuse why they couldn't participate. Now, at the time, we're thinking, okay, not everybody likes to monitor calls and transcribe. That part of the job sucks, right? So they just don't want to be stuck in that wire room. Come to find out, they were the two cops with the help of a deputy friend of theirs who hit this house. Turns out without a search warrant, our prosecutor calls to find out what's going on, calls their boss and says, hey, can I get a copy of the search warrant that uh, they did? Because that's a high level target we're working on that potentially screws up our case. They should have seen that address in the database for deconfliction. They should have seen that was a target house and should have called first. So he's like, yeah, no problem. Well, they said, yeah, let us go get the search warrant. They delivered the search warrant it's got a judge's obvious forged signature on it. we are like, oh shit, what's going on here? Next thing you know, we're up on a wiretap on these two cops, the phones and their buddy, the deputy. They had been robbing drug dealers the whole f- time for years. And uh, so that wiretap we have to put on hold on the other target, put up a subsidiary like you know, residual wiretap that's now a bigger case in the other room while this one's going on on these cops. Like we – Surveillance. We had to follow them 24 7, all this. You know, that's just the shit that you can't stumble into if you're not
2: in that wiretap world. You know, you're
1: so inside things.
2: And and as our listeners, our regular listeners know, we we make no bones about it. Nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop. So the fact that you guys prioritize the case on the On the police officers who are committing the crimes, I love it because that just reinforces everything we say right here on game of crimes
1: it does, and I am the biggest like promoter of cops, especially in this current climate. You know we all know that almost all cops are doing things for the right reasons, or whatever but you 're right when you and that 's why that 's why we get pissed because when you in, in twenty one years, I worked two bad cop investigations in twenty one years you know a total of four bad cops. That's pretty good. So I have known and worked with thousands and tens of thousands of cops and only four I've come across were dirty. So your odds are pretty good that we are right and the mainstream narrative is wrong, but we hate because they tarnish everything that, you know, we've all had friends who've been killed, like in, and you're going to tarnish the reason that it's no. you know, the reason we honor them for being hurt or killed and. Sac- the sacrifices they make, you just undid all of that, man, with your dumbass thing that you just did. So we're happy to put right. that away.
0: And you're yeah. talking about – you probably right. can't see it on the back of my printer. I was just touching it here. One of my friends, I've got the etching off the wall, um, the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial, his panel where he's at. And it's like every time guys do shit like that, they tarnish – the name of my friend, you know, yeah. your friends, yes. stuff like that. And that's why we take it serious. Like even, even now that we're all off the job, you know, officially it's like, no, you, you retire. You don't, you don't get the badge. You don't get the gun. You know, the only thing you retire with is your respect and your credibility, you know? And it's like, Without that, that's why guys like this. What I liked about it. Well, let me let us dive into this a little bit because now that you've brought it up, let's talk about this. How were these guys getting information all along of knowing which houses to to rip? Um, what were they getting it from? Listening in on some of the wiretaps, you know? Uh, how were they? How were they doing all these other things and not getting caught up until this point?
1: Right. Well, they came across our targets because they attended to the damn briefing, right? So they got all the information they needed about where the they live, what they're into, all that stuff. But for their other hits, they had this uh, informant basically on the street who would just feed them, you know, this guy's got money right now. He's sitting on money. This is where he lives. If you hit him right now, you can get money. And so, they just go around. I don't want to say
0: their mistake was, but their mistake was, which is a stupid thing to do that shows that they're getting arrogant and think they're 10 feet tall and bulletproof is now they're taking information that comes from inside a closed law enforcement briefing and going, hitting this place. Like you guys aren't going to figure this out.
1: I mean, that's, that was the stupidest thing. Like, yeah. Cause you know, we're listening to their phones. Like, so how dumb are you? To think that somehow the fact that they just got hit by the police is not going to come to our attention. I don't know. Like, I guess they just got cocky. They've been doing it a long time and thought they were, you know, they were bulletproof. They couldn't be caught. I don't know. I mean, that's why they always get caught, right? They get too greedy at some point.
0: Well, All that greed, that's mistake. what we capitalize on. Yeah. yeah. Greed and stupidity, man. That's the whole point. You're stupid. It's like, I don't want to say if they kept just using informants, they probably would have got away with it for a lot longer because none of those guys are going to go really, Hey, I'm a drug dealer and I'm sitting on 250,000, you know, of ill gotten gains, but somebody just ripped me off. You're not going to call the police for
1: stuff like that.
0: Right. But, Until hey, so,
1: their little informant catches a, a case himself and he's, and he's looking at 30 yeah. years. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, Hey, I got, and, some... I got something for you. You're really going to be interested in. Right? <laughs> right. So,
2: well, right. and That's it's... the thing these guys should have known. Well, they did they did know it. They let their pride and their ego get in the way. But if he's snitching on them today, he's going to snitch on you tomorrow. He's going to snitch on anybody to save his own ass.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
2: There so is it's... no
0: honor among thieves as they say. So what was the outcome for these guys? what you, how'd
1: you jam uh... them up? They got, you know, we did a lot of surveillance. We covered a couple, um, I, I, you know, we got into the informant one and that wasn't us directly. I was just on a surveillance side and running the wiretap room, but, um, our guys and the IMPD worked together. They grabbed up that informant. Once they found out about him, which we heard them have calls with him, they go grab him up and they're like, guess what, dude, <laughs> you're about to go away for a long time. Um, do you want to minimize that a little bit? Because we're gonna have you set up a phone call with them and tell them that you're setting on a high level target right now that's got a bunch of cash in this hotel room, and we're gonna watch them hit it. And they did. They came and hit it, and of course it was an undercover guy in there that they robbed. And uh we monitored the whole thing. And it was mic'd up on the inside of the hotel room, got it all, you know? And uh they put a like thirty-five year now, did they take him. him
0: down uh, during Good. the hit or did they take him down later after the rip?
1: Uh, we let him get home. And I remember um, I was gone for – I had to go to a school or something on the takedown. But they they waited because they, they were talking. They had a plan. According to them, it was going to be like the ending of the town. They're like, yeah, we go out, man. It's a blaze of glory. You know, we got – then they uh, – th- with all these rifles in their trunks and stuff. And they're like, nobody's taking us alive. Like it was a movie to them. Right. So they set it up, you know, we had SWAT guys in plain clothes, plain cars, following them around. And I think they got arranged a meeting that they were supposed to be at for something. So they were coming at the same time to this parking garage downtown and then they would take them in the parking garage. Um, and wherever they were going, they were going to have to check their gun. So they're like, well, that gives us the best opportunity that they might leave it in their car. So they did it that way. And of course there was no, they cried and they you know, just went like,
2: not so tough, tough guys. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: All that talk. Yeah.
2: They're playing pretend.
1: Right. Right.
0: I've seen so. them do that. There was that one uh, LAPD case of that LAPD detective, the female who had killed somebody like 20 years earlier. And once they got the information, they started working the case. And that's what they did. They brought her in. She was working like art theft or something, some high end stuff. But they said, hey, we got an informant. So they interviewed her and in the, they brought her into the jail to interview a, an informant, so to speak. And that was their dodge. That's how they got her disarmed. Was wow. going into the yeah. jail
1: and then, then, yeah. So it's they a a plan. Th- I mean, you really got to think those things through. That, that's part of the cool thing of what we do, right. When you were, especially if you're working in like covert type investigations, the outside the box thinking that goes into that. It's just, I mean, that's what hooked me
0: and you got to do it because, you know, at some point, you got to think that these guys are always constantly or should have been assessing, is this a setup? Are we about to get taken off? You know, what are the signs that this is a setup? You know, why would we be meeting here? It's like one day, I need you to go do something you've never done before in your career. And, you know, it's like, okay, no, it's got to be something they're so familiar with. It's the dullness of the routine. You you got to bore them into making a mistake. Right. Yeah, totally. Totally. Let's now let's start talking about let's start transitioning, and you can talk about a couple cases as we do this. But when did this comedy bug hit you? When did you start finally realizing that hey, I'm a smartass, but hey, I think there's I have a chance at comedy here?
1: Yeah, I uh, you know I was seeing a girl uh at the time and she she Did had a Did she know you list. were
0: seeing her? Were you using binoculars? That's a Larry the Cable guy thing. I was seeing a stripper for six weeks using my binoculars. No sorry.
1: Yeah she, she was quite aware uh, as far as I know and uh she. Wait a minute as far as I know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like put a disclaimer out there. Yeah, she seemed like
1: she was having a good time I don't know <laughs> but she uh she had this bucket list she was always knocking out because prior to us even dating, she had you know, um, she was a cancer survivor, so she had had this bucket list. She, she even though she was in remission, she's like, I'm gonna knock out that bucket list because you never know. So she was always on me. You got to make a bucket list, do this. So I'm like, okay, well, I, I make my bucket list and try stand up comedy was number one on my list, and I even know like, I only put it really because I like. Kind of was obsessed with stand-up comedy, like listening to it and watching it on TV. But obviously there was no way in my mind for somebody in Indianapolis, Indiana to do stand-up comedy. I had no concept. Who were your stand-up heroes at that time? Who were your go-to people for stand-up? Man, at that time, it was definitely Jerry Seinfeld, Ellen DeGeneres I really liked. There was a guy named Jake Johansson at the time who was always on Letterman that I was kind of obsessed with. And he's not even like a famous guy, but back then he was on TV a lot those were those were my first initial influences beyond the major four albums that everybody's parents had at that time which was robin williams and uh george carlin and bill cosby and which and the seven
0: I, dirty words you know you yeah <laughs> yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah so you know those guys were huge but i kind of liked the the ones i was seeing on tv at the time that were kind of of closer to my age and uh that was seinfeld ellen degeneres and uh, definitely Jake Johansson. So anyway, I I make that bucket list, and I'm like, yeah, but this is something I'll never have to do, right? I, you just can't do that here. Well, come to find out, there is a whole stand-up scene here in Indianapolis, and there is in every city that you go to. And uh, my girlfriend at that time, turns out, knew a guy who was an open-mic comedian. through her, through a, He was a cousin of a girl we had gone to high school with, So she calls him and finds out how to sign me up for an open mic and calls me and says, Hey, yeah, this Saturday in April, you know, you, uh, you got to show up and do three minutes. You're on the list. And I'm like, what? She's like, yeah. So I'm like, I can't back out now. You know, that bucket list is kind of a big deal to her. (laughs) Like, okay, cool that you survived cancer, but I'm going to be selfish and not go through with my first thing on my bucket list. Right. I got to go. So I get real freaked out about it, and I get a little anxiety. So I take, like, three days off of work just to –
0: Wait a minute. You're a rough, tough Indiana State police. You've worked homicides and big cases, and you're getting all upset about three minutes standing on a stage?
1: I know, and I was an instructor, right? Like, I would travel all around and talk, and I was the funny guy in the briefings. Like, I was not afraid to talk to people, but the thought of having to go on that stage and try to be – like even something somewhat familiar to what my heroes were in comedy petrified me. So uh, three days beforehand, I'm just falling apart, and I'm like, and I had written stuff, and I'm like, I got to refine this. So I spent three whole days like refining this stupid little three minute act I had written. And then I, the night of, my dad and a buddy of mine and my girlfriend were all going to ride to the comedy club together. And mind you, everybody I work with is coming. Like they have found out about it. I've got like 50 people coming to watch me do comedy for the first time. So then the nerves really kick in. I'm my dad and my buddy and my girlfriend. I'm like, we got to go up there early. We got to leave early. Let's go up there. It's like three o'clock in the afternoon shows at eight. Let's leave right now. And they're like, why? I was like, cause I have to get drunk. I have got to get hammered or I'm going to back out of doing this. So we go up there, my dad, and I, we just have a blast. we do a bunch of shots and, Get all drunk. I don't even remember doing my act that first time, to be honest. Like, I remember going up to the stage. I kind of remember going off. I don't remember how it went. I was really, really drunk, but I guess it went great. My friends loved it. And after the show, like the next day, the guy running the open mic had messaged me on Facebook and he was like, Hey, man, you should stick with this. You're really good. You got a lot of potential. And I'm like, Really? And he's like, Yeah. So I just
0: kept it. It's going to be expensive it. getting drunk before every time I do oh, a same. comedy bit.
2: <laughs> do you still get drunk before you do a show?
1: Yeah, that's that's part of being a professional stand-up comedian too. A great part of your check goes to alcohol. Like <laughs> it turns out. <laughs> now at the club you drink for free, but when you leave there, yeah. So it's, yeah, I caught the bug. I get addicted. I'm a very much a, a personality that easily gets addicted to things. And it's usually things that I'm not good at, but I greatly want to be good at. Like I got really into jujitsu for a while and I just, it was Same here, Bushikon jujitsu. Right? Yeah. Because it's natural for a wrestler. Yeah, absolutely. So for three years of my life, I just was spent all my free time in jujitsu seminars and training. And then when I discovered comedy, all those shows are at night. I got equally obsessed. I'm like, I'm not good look at these people that are good. I got to be better than them. And I, before you knew it, I was doing an open mic every night of the week. You know, my son was old enough. He could stay home at night at that point. And I just worked my ass off until finally I got good enough. Somebody wanted to pay me. And then, you know, I, I was a regular on the Bob and Tom show here. I love those show. guys.
0: In fact, one of the things you'll see on the Bob and Tom show, one of my favorite bands is here come the mummies. Have you ever watched Here Come the Mummies? I
1: love Here Comes the Mummies. I love everything associated with that show.
0: Oh, man. They have done – you'll go to YouTube. You'll see Bob and Tom. They have done some clips like Attack of the Wiener Man. Yeah. And stuff like Bob and Tom, those guys are just sitting there busting a gut. I mean the first time they were
1: on, it's just like this is the greatest thing ever. It was so cool. <laughs> I loved it. And it, and it kind of really brought – everything full circle for me, really, because once you, you know, when you're ending the near the, or when you're nearing the end of your law enforcement career, like you can see the end of it, right? You don't know how close you are to it exactly, but you can, you can visualize it in your head. Um, and you find a passion for something else like I had, you become less passionate about your cop job. I still loved what I did. loved the guys I worked with. I had the greatest job in the department at the time, But in me was this need to really pursue comedy and radio or whatever I could get into. So at the end of my career, I get a job with our electronic surveillance unit. Actually, me, my best friend on the department, and then my second best friend got to start the electronic surveillance unit. We didn't have one, but we got a new superintendent. And he thought the coolest thing in the world was that Marshall's truck that they could ride around in and track cell phones, you know, with that fugitive task force used. And he wanted one for the state police in Indiana. So we bought a truck, the company that makes that equipment. We go to a bunch of schools, get trained up. We go to Baltimore and ride with the godfather of that technology there at the time and uh you know the the unit that the wire was based off of we spent some time with them they trained us up and uh then we hit the ground running with this truck now i'm going to fast forward through a lot of stories cuz i know we're probably getting close to the end no no dude we we're, we're
0: here as long as you want to be here there's that's a great thing about storage storage is cheap we can
1: go as long as you want to <laughs> well what i loved really about this new unit i mean i love this the magic trick of now we can find anybody as long as we know what their phone number is we can find you right and so we're finding and we had a threshold too we're only taking violent felons so these were always big deal operations when we had to go hands-on so we get this uh nobody knows what we know and i always like that's the perfect job in law enforcement when only you know what you know and you're the only people that can do that thing, you're irreplaceable, right? And nobody can really mess with you because they don't know how to do your job. It's the dark arts. It's black magic. Nobody oh, wants to screw so, with you. Yeah. And I will say this, like, as long as your numbers look good, basically they don't care what you're doing. You want to take a couple of days off and go do something else. Nobody's checking up on you, right? As long as our numbers are good every month, we're good. Well, we had a great crew. We go after um uh, All you know, we caught seven murderers murderers in one night. One night, I remember, I'll never forget that seven guys with murder warrants on them in one night. Like we just kept going, one after another. Let's go to the next one, you know. And so we were really having a good time. And then with that, we uh, you know (laughs) some crazy shit happens. I would say when you're in that world, and one of the craziest stories I have from it is, I I I had never owned an ankle gun. I never wore an ankle gun my whole time as a cop, right? So my buddy, I tell him one day, he's like, I think I should have an ankle gun, man. I've been playing clothes like my entire career. Why have I not had an ankle gun? And now we're this tactical team, I should have a second gun. So I go out and I buy one, I buy a five shot, uh Smith and Wesson, a little air weight. And, uh, I remember when I went to get the holster, they didn't have one for that model. So I got one for a 380 semi-automatic is a similar size. And I'm like, ah, that's good enough. So I, I get this ankle gun, and uh I am about to hear it's not gonna be. <laughs> yeah.
2: uh, I, I already heard this get too. It's funny it's funny. Okay.
1: So we go to work the next day and I am excited. I got a new toy, right? And the mistake was, long story short, I didn't know where to wear the thing. I so I put it inside my right leg instead of or uh, I'm sorry, outside my right leg instead of inside my left ankle. Well, I I was our door kicker. I was just really good at kicking doors. It was just a skill that I had for no good reason. I don't know, martial arts or whatever. I was really good at kicking doors open. And uh, we go to the morning briefing. We have three warrants to serve that day. And the first one was at this trailer, which I was really excited about because when you're a door kicker, you know, trailer doors, everybody looks like they have a big leg when you kick a trailer door. It's way less infrastructure to a trailer door than a regular house door. So you look like a champion every time it's like, you know, it's like a cheat day. Even like the
0: smallest che- guy on the team can kick open a trailer yeah. door.
1: And you, yeah. You look like a monster every time. It's like punters when they get to uh, punt in the NFL in Denver, you know, the thin air, they get extra carry. They they always look like they get a big leg. So I I'm excited about it. And we go there to serve this warrant And by the way, this is supposed to be a kidnapping situation. So my mind's eye goes immediately back to the other kidnapping. I worked in a judge's daughter by who had fallen into the drug world, had this on and off again, problem relationship with this boyfriend. And allegedly he had been texting the mother, um, the judge's wife that he was going to hurt their daughter. If he didn't come up, they didn't come up with some money. And, uh, so we're treating it very seriously and we sneak up on this house and again, I'm feeling good. I got this ankle gun, you know, nothing can go wrong now. I dropped the main gun, got a backup. So we get in a stack, the little wooden stoop to that front door and when my sergeant yells go, I kicked this door. It was, a, it was back in the days of no knock warrants, right? Emergency or exigent circumstances. We can't alarm him because he's supposedly holding this girl at gunpoint and all this stuff. So we just hit the door. Boom! And I kick it. Best kick of my career, by the way. I shredded this door off its frame. And when I do so, uh, I kick that door so hard, like my leg hyperextends. And I remember like my knee popping. Like, ah! Like painful. Now, you know,
0: on some of those trailers, too, the door actually opens out as opposed to in. Was this one of those that opened
1: out? Yes. So they all... Yeah, you're right. But... Big old leg on that day. Yeah, right? you can. So, yeah, you can punch it through that opening. <laughs> got, right, and again, there's not a lot to the to the structure surrounding that door. So I kick it, and I go through, and my leg like hyperextends, and my knee pops, and my ankle gun that's in a holster for a 380, not you know, not the make and model of the ankle gun that's inside it, leaves its holster and shoots out the bottom of my pants leg into the trailer. Now, like you said, those trailer doors, a lot of them pull open. They don't push in. So when I kicked it so hard, when it hit the back wall, it bounces off, comes back and catches the frame because it is a pull open door and shuts itself again. (laughs) So right in front of me. And And my ankle. You just armed the guy inside the house. Yes. So my sergeant, they're like pushing me in the stack. Go, go, go. And I'm like, wait a minute. There's a gun in there. And they're like, how do you know that? I was like, because it's mine. My ankle gun is inside that trailer. So finally my sergeant's like, just go, man. Just go. So we pushed through and thankfully... That guy had, uh, you know, he was on the ground and he was like giving up. And and the, he said the funniest thing, uh, he, he looks because my gun is sitting in the middle of the floor and he goes, I ain't falling for your gun across the floor, bullshit. Like I had, <laughs> you know, <laughs> thrown it in. Here you go, badass. <laughs> yeah, he's armed. Oh, gun, right. gun.
0: Hey, but I can right. ask you one question. If that was your ankle holster, you were kicking a door and going into a situation without having a primary weapon on you? No, I had my primary
1: weapon. It's just when I kicked that door. Oh, your backup ankle gun shot out my pants leg. Like so, uh, the whole way running up there, you know what happened, right? Like the ankle gun is unseating itself from this holster the whole time I'm running up to this door, and it's barely on there. Obviously, so when I kicked that door, it was just loose in my pants leg, barely. Here we go.
2: (laughs) This reminds reminds me of
1: Beverly Hills
0: cop Eddie Murphy. I'm not falling for that banana in the (laughs) tailpipe. I'm not falling for the gun on the ground. I give up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was the craziest thing. I was so scared. I'm like, I am going to get in trouble. Like a guy, what if he has my gun? He starts shooting back at us. Uh, but thankfully it went okay.
2: Well, did, and so the follow-up question is: Did you ever go get the the correct, proper fitting holster for I your ankle gun? <laughs> I did. Did you put
1: it on your left leg instead of the right? Yes, inside my left leg instead there you of go. outside my right. So, <laughs> I, it, it, you know, we wrapped up that career with, um, and it's it's sad because my buddy, that the sergeant that said go, he was my best friend. He started the unit. And he recruited us. He died uh, a couple years ago of a brain tumor. And we are the exact same age. We were born just days apart. Our birthdays were like four or five days apart. And uh, so all my great stories, fortunately and unfortunately, involve Mitch. Excuse me, I just, he's like my brother, right? And he was so funny himself. And he loved that I was a stand-up comedian. So I mean, that guy came to every one of my shows if it was anywhere near Indianapolis. And but he would make me laugh just as much. And and there was a time we attract the bad guy to this uh, apartment and we knew he was in there with his girlfriend. He'd been on the lam for a while for a series of armed robberies and a bank robbery. And uh he the information was he was hit up with his girlfriend. We put the phone there. Definitely he's there. And we're outside and we see at one point like he lifts up the the blinds and looks out and then sees some cops gathering and closes lights go out. Everything goes dark. So we go to the door with the uh, sheriff's deputies. The, their gang task force was the ones that had the warrant for him. And uh, they bang on the door, bang on the door. No response from the girlfriend. We know she's in there. We put her phone in there too. And he's in there. No response. It's dark and they're quiet. Now, I guess they're just like, well, they'll go away at some point, which of course we won't. right? So now we're working. We're, we got a guy working to get us a, a search warrant, but it's late at night to get a search warrant to make entry. But it's going to take hours to get that and we're sitting there and they're like man i wish we could get in there i wish we could get in there And my buddy bitch is like i got an idea and they're like yeah and he goes yeah and uh i and he just looks at me with this he would get this look on his face when he was about to do something crazy and i was <laughs> like yeah go man <laughs> oh, go shit. so i'm just grinning ear to ear and i give him the nod do it so he bangs on the door as loud as he can and the girl's name was katrina and he was like katrina if you're being held against your will and you feel like your life is in danger and you need us to kick in this door and come in and save you, remain completely silent and you can <laughs> <laughs> and then at one point you hear this guy from inside go, "Man, that's fucked up." <laughs> <laughs> like go get the, you can hear him just open the door he goes don't shoot me i'm getting on the ground and it was all over she opened the door and he was there on the ground ready to surrender it was like <laughs> the most clever funny thing i would ever seen in my life <laughs> well there's
0: actually it's probably urban legend but it i know it has to be true have you ever heard of the alabama search warrant mm-hmm so, the Alabama search warrant, Todd. As you get a couple deputies in front, you get a couple deputies in back. The couple deputies in front knock on the door. They go, "Bum bum bum, yo, it's the police." And the guy in back yells, "Y'all come in." <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I love that. Uh, <laughs> I love
2: it. There might be some truth to that. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. I, I know that when I was a rookie in Salina, there was this one guy, and I I, I know the house. I just can't think of his name, but kind of a prolific drug dealer, but he always seemed to avoid, you know, getting caught with dope and everything. And so one of the things they started doing, they started going up, you'd go up to the house and knock on the door and yell, police search warrant, police search warrant. And then you'd hear stuff flush or, you know, you give him a minute. It's like, cause they weren't doing no knocks and he'd come to the door and it's like, okay, where's your search warrant? I go, but damn, I forgot it. Okay. We'll be back. And you know, they'd leave. They did that like five or six times. The seventh time, he shows up. He's yeah, yeah. Let me see your search form. They go, oh, here it is. <laughs> <And> they come <laughs> I mean, up with the shit this time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we used to pull some shit sometimes where we would put in a, an anonymous call to a certain house, and we would just pull the old, hey man, cops coming. They got a search warrant. You need to get rid of your shit and just hang up and just watch them run to their, and load their car up and take off and then stop them. (laughs) (laughs) We
0: were, we were executing search warrants one time. And it's one of those things is like when the phone call, I said, I'll get it. I'll get the phone. So we're doing all these warrants and, uh, some drug warrants. We got the department of revenue guys with us, uh, the tax agents and stuff. And so the phone rings, I pick it up, go, yeah, yo man, no, they're, they're hitting all these houses. They're searching these things. You got to get out of the stuff. I go, it's kind of like, you know, uh, 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 Garth and you know what, Garth Wayne's world, you know, Garth, and uh-huh. Wayne, no way, yeah, wait, they're doing this. And I said, <laughs> and so I let this go for a minute. I go, Is that you, Heather? <laughs> 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 hey, that's Detective Wright. How are you? Click, <laughs> <I'm like>, <laughs> you know, just sometimes all you have to do is answer the phone and go, Yeah, you know, and it's like and then they just start talking and telling you everything you need to know.
1: Oh, I love it. Our prosecutor one time sold drugs to a guy during a, a, a cleanup of our search warrant, he was there. He he. Sometimes he was a younger guy, so sometimes he'd go out on warrants with us, and we were just like cleaning up, counting money, getting the drugs together, and stuff. And he's sitting at a table, and he's taking notes. And uh, there's a knock at the door, and a guy comes to buy drugs. I open the door. Of course, we all look like dirtbags ourselves. And uh, he's like, "Hey, man, is so and so here?" And we're like, "No, nah, man, he'll be back in, you know, about an hour." So he left. And he's like, what do you need? You need you need hooked up. And he's like, "Yeah." We're like, "How much?" And he said it. So the prosecutor sat there. And frickin' went through the dope and bagged him up what he needed, put it on the scale, handed it to him, and then I cuffed the guy.
2: <laughs> like it was, <laughs> it's,
0: it's like not, a drive
2: through It's like oh, a self-service, it's so you know?
1: It's so great.
2: That's like somebody trying to rob a cop bar.
1: Oh, I you know. know oh, oh, I love it. You know, we had another time <laughs> we uh I was buying drugs out of I was buying math out of this little smoke okay, shop. Okay, rule number one, one
0: on this show, I gotta tell you, Todd. Rule number one. What's rule number one, Murph? What do we tell kids? Don't do
1: meth. Don't do Don't meth. Do Don't do meth. Yeah. Meth is bad for sure. I I had worked my way up into this crew, and they they owned the smoke shop, and it was a smoke shop. They sold, like, weed paraphernalia, and but it was, you know, for tobacco consumption, mm, Of course it was. Yeah. Yeah. So I go in there, and this one particular buy, and they had this little room. You go in there, and then they would get your dope together for you. And they had these um little like um oh, what's the stuff you spray on the like if you have an older car to get your your if your starter locks up and you can spray on there. Or is that
0: ignition uh I'm trying to think it's basically it's it's like starter fluid. It's like it's yeah trying to think they, what it was. It almost looked like a WD forty can or something, but you'd spray it in there
1: into the old carburetor and it would be flammable enough. It would jump start your car. Yeah. Exactly. Well they sold fake ones of those behind the counter that had, you know, you unscrew the bottom and you could put your dope in there and it had this void at the bottom. And, you know, people, you would leave with that. That's how I would leave with my dope every time. And, uh, so I, I do a buy and I go into this little room and they do that. And then I, I leave and two things happen when I leave. One, we get, uh, I go to be, do my debriefing, you know, and record that with, with my cover guy and the rest of the team had been doubled up in the car. So they stopped at this little, this parking lot for this movie theater and, and then left half the cars doubled up, you know, like we do. And so two things happen. When I get back to my debrief, I notice I don't have my wallet on me and I'm like, shit, I think I left my wallet in that room in the smoke shop. And they're like, okay, well, it's was your that undercover your wallet. wallet. Oh, that was your UC wallet? Right. And I said, it is my undercover wallet, which, by the way, my, my boss, my sergeant gave that to me when I got released on my own undercover. And it was back in the Pulp Fiction days. So it was the bad motherfucker wallet, right? It said bad motherfucker on the outside. And he gave that to me, and he said, one day, this might save your life. And it's a conversation piece. Carry this every time you do a deal. And I'm like, okay. So – I I evidently dropped my wallet somewhere when I was getting the money out. And uh, the bad news was I knew I had went to a doctor's appointment earlier that day. So I did grab my state police insurance card and I'm like, I am 99% sure like an idiot. I stuck that state police insurance card in my undercover wallet. Right. So I'm like, this is bad. This could take down the whole operation. And we were doing this for the DEA because they were trying to work up to the guy's uncle who had big ties you know, across the border. So I'm like, I just might have ruined this whole case. So that's going on. I'm trying to call the rest of the team to like, hey, we got to go back there. I got to get my wallet. We got to work something out. But maybe we have to be ready to take down the whole thing, right, and arrest everybody. Well, I can't get a hold of anybody. The reason why is because they went back to go get the other vehicles. Um, they, They get to my buddy Trevor's truck, and they see the passenger door is open. And there's a pair of legs sticking out, like kicking around. This dumbass had broken into Trevor's undercover truck. And is stealing shit and they can see him throwing out and Trevor had a lot of gear in there. So he's like throwing radio vest and shit like out. Like he, he just hit the jackpot, right? He's in, Oh, look at all the, there's guns in there and shit. So they sneak up Trevor and this other dude and they each grab a leg and they just rip this dude out and like bad day for you. You know, (laughs) like this guy, they catch him in the act of stealing like police stuff. And, uh, so that's going on. So I have to wait for all that to subside before I can even get a hold of anybody. And when I get a hold of them, I'm like, we got to go back, dude, and be ready, be ready. I have to go in there, silver tongue, this thing to death. But if they saw that state police insurance card, um, we're screwed. Be ready to take this whole place down. So we set up that way. I call my guy and I was like, dude, um, I think I left my wallet um, I'm gonna, I'm like I'm gonna knock on your door in like two minutes I gotta get that thing well I was literally there boom 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 so he didn't have time to go through it well it had fallen between a couch cushion he finds it when I get there he is laughing his ass off and he's like dude where do I get this wallet this is the funniest shit it's the Pulp Fiction wallet and like yeah my sergeant was right like because he saw that and just loved the wallet so much he didn't bother to it open it up and go him, through yeah. it. it saved the whole operation So, um, yeah, that can, that ended up being a big case.
0: Well, I didn't have that kind of big case, but we did have a guy that we said, so, uh, one of the big, uh, the area I was in when I was a police officer too, I was, went from the state patrol to the police department, worked investigations and the, um, uh, local community. We had a large Mexican community. I mean, North Mexico, you know, fam second, third generation. So they would host these big dances down at an area we called the three I lot. And they would hire us, you know, uniform to come down, work security for the thing. And me and one of the guys I'm working with, one of the sergeants, we're standing there and we see this vehicle out by itself in this huge parking lot and the lights going on, then it's going off about a minute later, the light goes on and then it goes off. We're going, what the hell is that? Let's go find out. So we get in the vehicle We have an unmarked vehicle, and we drive around, and we sneak up behind this thing um, and figure they're probably going to see us if there's anything going on. We thought it was just somebody making out or whatever. Well, Mm -hmm. they don't spot us yet, and we get up there, and it's one guy in the car, and we both recognize him. He's a guy that works at one of the car dealerships. We know he's a big cokehead and a dealer, (laughs) and he doesn't see us. He's snorting coke off of a CD. Case and so we 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 were looking at each other. Goes okay, like you go left, I'll go right. So we'll open the doors and grab him. I'll grab the coke. He'll grab him. You know. So we execute that plan perfectly, and he doesn't know what's going on. This look on his face is like, well, when we arrest him, we take a look and we realize, oh, well, we got him. Technically, he's in the county because because the city county butted up right against each other there. So we We just do the cursory pat down, no weapons we give them to the sheriff's office we get a We get a call <laughs> later thirty minutes later. they had taken him up to jail and when they started doing more of a pat down, they reached back behind to grab his pants. We had shocked him so much the dude had literally shit his pants. (laughs) When they reached down to say, what is this? And they squeezed it. They squeezed a pile of shit into his underwear. (laughs) So Is it possible to scare the shit out of somebody?
1: Uh, Yes, yes, it it is. is. Oh, that's hilarious. You know, (laughs) when uh, (laughs) when the DEA finally did their big takedown on that that smoke shop as part of their bigger investigation, I, I got put on something else after it started taking off. But uh, my buddy told me during the takedown of the smoke shop, when they took it down behind their, the glass with all their other paraphernalia and shit, they had a stack of bad motherfucker wallets. They were ordering them in bulk from com, and, and then like charging twice as much there than you could buy them for online. It was brilliant.
2: Oh, geez. <laughs> but, you know, that. That's the funny thing about law enforcement. You run into some crazy stuff that most people never hear about and right. certainly don't participate in. Guess oh, what? Yeah. That website
0: still exists. I just went to it. What's now it? it's called bmfwallets.com and it's got <laughs> bad motherfucker on there. <laughs> That's where my boss <laughs> got it. That's <laughs> um, great. <laughs> and there's some pictures of some guys uh, in uniform, like military and stuff, holding up their
1: BMF wallets. So, Oh, yeah. I'm going to order one then because I lost mine somewhere. It was probably at my mom's house somewhere with all my under, so other undercover to, stuff.
0: Even if you type in bad motherfucker wallets, it takes you back to bmfwallets.com now.
1: Oh, uh, that makes sense that they shortened it. <laughs> while they were basically like, in today's climate. <laughs> Most yeah. of their
0: stoners couldn't spill out that <laughs> motherfucker. <often. laughs> hey, so um, let's talk about as you got to the end of your career, how did you transition from doing this part-time to doing what you're doing full-time now?
1: Okay. Two things happened um, within my li- like my last year on. So we had one operation there in the truck where we were asked – there was a big heroin deal that was going to go down, and our guys were running it, um, our drug unit guys, and uh, they, wanted, uh, they wanted us to put the bad guy down at a house first by, by way of his phone, right? So they had us out the night before, and we put him down at this house. <clears throat> now, they knew the guy was going to be leaving from his house to this deal, and there was going to be a big buy bust happen. And I mean, I'm talking like a good amount of heroin, like a, a, a satchel full of heroin. So um, we we put him down and then we come back out the next morning to just be in the peripheral in case the surveillance loses him. Because we had hooked the phone before and they're like, if we lose them, we can call you, just be in the area and you can go find him again, right? <clears throat> well, they get burnt on the surveillance. and. He, he pulls a like a, one of those – you always know when you get burnt, right, because the car goes up and then pulls a U-turn and then comes right back at you like 100 miles an hour. And sometimes they flip you off while they're doing it. But that happens, and then they go chasing after him, and they see him bail out a, on foot. He was in the back seat of a, of a car, two guys in the front. They catch the, the car eventually, but he gets out on foot. So they can't find him. We're trying to find his phone. It leads to this – Area where this apartment complex is, and there is, um, it's a real bad area for some reason. That time in Indianapolis, it was known the police knew now this is a dangerous apartment complex, but you go in there, your radio's not going to work. Now, we didn't know that at the time. So, we definitely know enough at this point, even though he keeps cycling his phone off and on, that he's in that apartment complex somewhere. So, Our drug guys get with their informant who started this whole thing, and he says, "All right, he's got a buddy there, and he if he's in that apartment complex, he went to his buddy's apartment, and this is the building that it's in. I don't know what apartment, but this is the building number." So we go in and set up like two buildings down, so that we're not. If anybody looks out a window, they can't see us, and we're in undercover vehicles and stuff, but we, we got our raid vests on at that point to say police on the front and all that shit. Cause we're ready to jump out. <clears throat> and, um, so I am, what I'm thinking is three buildings down from his, and I have the eyeball. I'm the closest. So I'm watching. And, um, next thing I know the guy walks out of the building right in front of me. So there's not 30 feet between me and him And so the guy had the building number wrong and he sees through the windshield police on my vest. And I'm like, oh shit, I'm trying to hit on the radio to tell guys I got him. He's right in front of me. And all I'm getting is that, that tone of death, the nothing's happening on my radio. So finally I just throw it and I just jump out and I put my hand on my gun and I'm like, put your hands up, put your hands up. I'm giving him orders. And he lays calmly lays this red gym bag down that has all the heroin and then he reaches into his lifts up his sweatshirt reaches to his right and i see a flash of metal and now we're only 20 feet apart maybe and um my brain you know 21 20 years at this point doing this uh caught a lot of bad guys had my gun out a lot you know just but it never had gone past that they always surrendered or would run and there would be a foot pursuit or something. So my brain is really slow for some reason. I was a pretty tactical guy, but you know, you can law yourself in a false sense of security after 21 years of no shootouts. And he pulls the gun and he's beat me. I mean, and I I'm like, holy shit, that's a gun. And I'm too late, but luckily there's a car to my left. So I pull my gun as as I do, I just move immediately to behind this car. Cause I'm like, he's beat me. I need cover. So I get there and I I pop up and he is coming at me around the car. So I go the other way around the car, right? And this happens for about six or seven cycles going around this car. And he is trying to shoot me over the hood of the car, but the gun is not firing. I mean, I can see him trying to pull the trigger enough that the end of the nozzle is like thumping the top of the car every time he goes to pull the trigger. But it's not firing. So my brain, again, is like, okay, what's going on? Are we in a shootout? Are we not? In-? Like, do I have to- I, this is the stupid things that pop into your mind. I'm, I, I, I was like, does he have to actually shoot at me before I can shoot back? Like this sounds I, like
0: I, a Seinfeld question now. Once one is in a shootout, do you actually have
1: to shoot to be in a
0: shootout? Right,
1: exactly. <laughs> so I am in like ducked low enough. If he does get a round off, I'm low enough. Hopefully it's over my head. But I'm continually running from this guy in a circle while he's coming after me. And finally, I'm like, no, fuck this. Kill this guy. Put him down. So I, 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 I keep running in a circle, and I'm like, all right, this time when I cross the passenger window, because it seemed like every time I was at the passenger window, when I looked through, I could see his belly through the driver window. And I'm like, next pass, pull up and shoot through that window and put him down before he manages to get this gun to work. So by the, I pop up, and when I go to do it, he's gone, and he is running now between these two buildings. So I run after him and like a dumbass, and I'm yelling gun because I'm trying to alert all my friends. He's yelling my ass off, but like a dummy, I don't tactically take this corner. I just run around the corner and he is on his knee, like in a a kneeling shooting position with his gun out. And he tries to shoot again. Again, I could see vividly to this day, the nose of that gun diving because he's pulling the trigger so hard. But Man, it this doesn't is like a
2: dream,
1: right? So I run back around and I'm like, "Yeah, dude, dumbass, be tactical. You almost got killed." So this time I, I do the you know cut the pie and I take slowly take the corner. And by the time I do that, he is at the end of the building. And I remember I, twice, two different times. One when he was initially running between the buildings, and then this time when he's getting ready to disappear behind the second building. Both times I had my gun. I had a bead on him. And I, both times I finger on the trigger came within a millimeter of pulling the trigger and just shooting him in the back. Right now, the second time he was far enough away, I was worried about hit, you know, missing. And there was a building behind him and hitting someone, I you know, by accident. The first time there was just enough doubt in my head, like, all right. I'm the white dude, I'm the white cop, this is a black guy running, even though you're you're lawfully justified to shoot him in the back right now, because you can articulate, he's going to shoot one of my friends, they don't know he's coming, right, and this gun eventually is going to work, I don't, I think about it too long, and he gets around that corner before I can make my, the decision to shoot him, and, you know, I was like, I'm trying to get on Comedy Central, I don't need to be on the news for, you know, with what, would follow with if I shoot him in this situation. So I am slow to react. I don't shoot him twice when I probably could have and looking back should have. But he makes that corner. And by that time that I make that corner, cops are running behind me with ARs. They had heard me and they're like, hold up, hold up, let's move as a group. And I'm like, okay, that's smart. So we we start moving more methodically as a three man team now. And I get two guys with rifles. We make that corner and I see that he has run, there's a big open parking lot in the middle of all these apartment buildings that kind of are in a circle around it. And he has made it all the way across that courtyard, if you will. And my buddy, Brad, who's on my team is pulling up in like a, a plain gold charger, obviously screams a police car and he runs straight at Brad's window, driver's side window. Brad comes to a screeching halt and just lays down because he tries to shoot Brad through the window. And again like enough that Brad said afterward the gun is hitting the glass. Like he is pulling the trigger and so frustrated that it won't fire, he is hitting the glass every time he pulls the trigger. So Brad like unholsters while he's laying down but the guy runs off again. So now there's nothing to shoot at. He comes out of the car about the time we reach his car and he's like he's got a gun, he's got a gun. And we're like we know, we know. So I grab Brad, and I say, Brad, you go with me left. He's about to hit the last apartment building, and we can see there's a big privacy fence and then houses on the other side. I'm betting on the fact that he's too tired to make that privacy fence. He's just going to run back south through the apartments. So I say, Brad, let's go this way. Let's head him off. You two go this way. We'll sandwich him in the middle. So by the time we both round our corners, he is gone. I'm like, shit. He made the fence. So we start to go across the fence. There's a large, like, um, electrical box there you could step on and go over the fence. So as we approach the fence, we start hearing, bam, 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 and it sounds like a cannon is going off round after round after round. And I just yell out, he's shooting through the fence. He's shooting through the fence. So everybody takes cover. I am behind me and Brad and I are behind this large electrical box. And then we just start hearing someone scream and like a blood curdling scream. And, uh, uh, my buddy Mitch, the one who unfortunately passed away a couple of days ago, runs up or a couple of years ago, runs up and he jumps up on the electrical box. We're all kind of frozen for a second, but he acts. He jumps up, takes a turkey peek over the, over the fence, and then he just leaps over and starts screaming, we got a man down, we got a man down. And uh, I was like, holy shit. So my buddy, just out of adrenaline, my buddy Brad and I reach up and grab this fence and just pull it down. You know, it's a shitty privacy fence, but we pull this whole, like two panels of it down and cops just start funneling into the backyard and we see the bad guy on his back. He's gravely wounded. He's, he's kind of on his back moving like in a weird way, you know, kind of robotically. And, uh, and then we see a guy in a flannel shirt and jeans and a ball cap on his hands and knees. But he's got his right hand up in the air, so he's left hands down, and he's on his knees, and he is just drenched in blood, and he's screaming, like uncontrollably screaming. And Mitch yells, that's one of ours. He's one of ours. So Brad and I, are we, we run up, and we grab him, our guy, and we pull him back. And one of our other guys that was with us was uh, – uh, Pretty uh, like a special forces type guy in uh, the Marine Corps in Afghanistan had a lot of field medic training so he starts triaging this guy and tears his clothes open and everything and we're not finding gunshots but he's covered in blood and I look up and his, his left, I'm sorry it was his left hand in the air his left like trigger finger is barely hanging on by like a tendon just hanging there and blood is just spewing from this thing and i said i think it's excuse me i think it's just his hand so i grab his arm and i pin it down i'm like we need to keep his arm still so we wrap it his hand tied around his body so it can't be can't move anymore and then we go to the bad guy and mitch is standing there at the bad guy and he's he's on his way out he's he's dying and uh i remember kneeling over the bad guy and i had my own little private moment with that guy that fortunately afterward was perceived by a woman that was in a balcony across the way. Uh, she told the media that um, she saw me praying with him as he was dying. Good answer. Good answer. Cause that's not what I was doing, but I was having my own private moment there that she construed as, you know, me having prayer with him on the way out. I wasn't, we were having our own conversation of a different kind, but he, he, he dies and right in front of us. Come to find out, this guy cleared the fence and this other trooper was off duty. So he was in regular clothes, but here's the radio traffic of all this shit going on. Pulls up and just gets lucky where he parks and gets out of his car, sees that guy that we're chasing, and he's real close. So he just jumps out and follows the guy over the fence. And when he does, that guy is again waiting for him and got a bead on him with this gun. And he kind of falls into the guy. And he pushes the guy's gun up, and as he's doing so, he's unholstering, and from his hip, just starts firing. And, he, of course, he's climbing, right? So it start at the abdomen, and the shots go all the way up to, to the bad guy's neck. And in the process— He shoots his own finger? Shoots his own finger up. God dang. That's what uh. we found in the aftermath, right? All I know at the time is it looks like he was in a gunfight with the guy— I didn't know for, for a long time, Uh, you know, the news didn't come out about him shooting himself for a very long time. For a long time. I thought the guy that I had a chance to put down twice ends up in a shootout with one of my guys, you know, unfortunately only shoots my guy's finger off, but came very close to probably killing him. So it like, it ate me up for a long time, even though all's well that ends well, they reattest his finger. He was working today. He's fine. But, um, Hey, quick you know,
0: question that, on that right there. When you said he pulled up off duty, were they driving their own cars? Were they driving? Did you have issued take home cars? Was he driving that off duty? Is that how he heard the radio traffic?
1: Yeah, to this day, every member, every sworn officer for the state police has a take home car with free use off duty in state, as long as you can drive it anywhere in the state. And it's for this reason so that you have tools there and you can jump in and help if needed, right?
2: Well, did you find out why his weapon wouldn't fire the bad we, guys?
1: We did. So they take it to the lab. What kind of weapon was it first? It was a Springfield X. I can't remember the exact model. Turns out it fires right away in the at the lab, right? Boom. Function testing. Boom. Good. It has that that mechanism, that little the pl- pressure plate on the back handle. You have to have proper grip in order for the trigger to pull. And he obviously well, didn't have proper grip. And that's why it wouldn't fire. And... When they got his body out of the ambulance, they discovered he had a 44 revolver, a short barrel, 44 revolver in his back pocket that he could have dumped that Springfield at any time and went to, but for some reason, adrenaline or whatever, just never did that. Wow. Yeah. So that was the moment where I was like, "Mm, maybe comedy would be a better (laughs) career path than this, because, you know, at that time... I'm, uh, gosh, when I retired, I was 45, I was like 44 years old, 43 years old. Yeah. But I don't want to, I want to let
0: you off the hook on something. I mean, I know you said you were feeling bad, but here's the other thing though, too. Imagine, I get it that you said, if you'd shot him, you're white, he's black. Imagine what would happen. And you're saying, what if he had actually shot this trooper? Imagine what would have happened though, had he been trying to shoot this and you find out later it's a fake gun. It's a toy, you know, it's a replica or whatever else. Then what's the narrative? The narrative is you're shooting a guy with a replica gun that you didn't have to shoot because it wasn't obviously working. And so it's one of those things. A lot of people can second guess stuff, but unless you're there, unless you're making that call, it's obvious as much as he was trying to shoot, it wasn't working. Now, like you said, could you have done it legitimately? Yeah. I mean, but
1: the it danger- wouldn't have been portrayed well. We all know that, right? I would have had a real uphill climb for the rest of my career and probably still to this day of that making that decision to shoot and you know and and i understand that people are right and you know like our superintendent everybody from my boss up and all the people i worked with were like no i i, I don't know that we would have made that decision but hopefully we would have because we think you made the right decision so many things could have gone wrong yeah, it, it, definitely the second time i i chose not to shoot because i could have missed and hit somebody through a window or something right but that first time there was nothing behind him and it was a closer shot and i would have put him down but you know i don't it's one of those things too you just got to feel like everything happened the way it, it was supposed reason. to there was a reason maybe divine intervention or whatever you believe why he wasn't able to get that gun to fire a reason that i lived through that because i was slow he should have had me i should have mm-hmm. been shot he should have shot brad like Murph my says brother it wasn't your day to die so that's right. exactly that's all you can that sums it up however however for whatever reason that happened, it wasn't my day. It wasn't Brad's day. It wasn't even that trooper's day who did, you know, shoot himself in the shootout. Um, so all's well that ends well, but you know, it did, it did screw with me a lot. You know, there's, you know, we all have a certain amount of PTSD after you work that long enough. And that was something I had to deal with for a while. And I still think about, but that helped me get over the hump. Um, I made my mind up as soon as I get an opportunity to pursue comedy full-time or something in that world, I'm going to do it. Now, in our department, to get your full pension, you got to work 25 years. I left four years early, so I sacrificed 8% of my pension. How much? Um, 8%. 8%. Two years, 2%. Every year that you leave early, basically, I mean, I get a pension, but instead of fifty percent, I get forty-two percent, right? So forty-two percent of something you couldn't afford to live on in the first place. So yeah, I can't live off my pension. I mean, it pays my house payment, so that's something. But that's good. Um, I get a call. I end up making friends with Pat McAfee. Is what happened. That was that was the opportunity that pre- uh, presented itself. He started doing stand-up comedy. and People that don't know Pat McAfee. At that time, he was just kind of known throughout the league as the crazy, funny punter for the Indianapolis Colts. Also best punter in the league, by the way, statistically. But he had had an incident where he got drunk one night, jumped into the canal in Broad Ripple, downtown Indianapolis, he got arrested for it, went on the Bob and Tom show, radio show talked about it, was hilarious. People loved him. He stayed on the Bob and Tom show. Every Tuesday he would come on and talk, and everybody loved him, and he started really taking off. And... uh he decided he, he was going to do stand-up comedy. He did a, a tour through Indiana. It was received well. He's very, very funny. He came into um, the comedy club. I had bought into three comedy clubs, one in Indianapolis, one in Louisville, one in Dayton, Ohio. What do you mean by you had bought into? Um, friends of mine owned them. There was an ownership group. They wanted to buy this club in Dayton, Ohio. So they needed capital for that. And I had capital. So they were like, Hey, you want to come a become a member of the ownership team. You'll be an owner in all three. And I'm like, yeah, so I do. And, uh, at the time I was single. I, I lived in an apartment with another comedian right behind the Indianapolis comedy club. So we could walk to and from the comedy club, do sets whenever we Which wanted. Which is good I because as drunk
0: as you had to be to do your sets, you <laughs> needed to walk home, not drive yeah, home. <laughs> there would be no driving for sure.
1: <laughs> I had my own bar that I could walk to. Yeah. We didn't, we needed to live close. So, uh, we, we have a, the time of our life and we call it the summer of Pat because we, uh, we became good friends with him. He would start coming to the comedy club and then he asked me and my buddy to start going on tour with him as these openers. And, uh, we, that summer he was single and single Pat was so much fun. I mean, you're, you're with the dude who's richest shit, first of all. So when he decides, Hey, let's the penguins are in the playoffs. Let's go catch a game. You did so by private jet and you, you know, you just had the time of your life. Wow. We, me and my buddy were playing this shitty, not, not shitty, the, a smaller comedy club in Myrtle beach, right? Just a low paying gig. You only, Comedians usually only do it because you get a free place to stay in Myrtle Beach for the weekend, and you make a vacation out of it. And this help the money you get paid helps cover your vacation. So we took the we had this gig scheduled. And he's like, oh, I wish you guys could hang out. And we're like, Well, we got to go to Myrtle Beach for this gig, and he's like, Why don't we all go? And so he gets like twelve people together. We fly down in a private jet, and we take a stretch limousine to and from the shows every night. You know, on this boardwalk in Myr- Myrtle Beach, and we just have a week long awesome rich guy vacation that you know i'll never forget so we became so good such good friends at some point he takes me to an indiana pacers game and uh he during the game i think halftime he's he says hey man come up here with me so we go up to this little bar that's in the where you know the vip area and he says hey you know how you've been thinking about retiring from the state police early to just do comedy and i was like yeah and he goes I'm going to retire from the NFL and just do comedy. But I got a, I got a gig worked out with Barstool Sports out of New York where I can have my own radio show and podcast under their umbrella and they'll let me hire you and you'll make way more than you did, you know, working for the state police. And you can just do radio with me every day and podcasts and you can work on your stand-up. And we'll go around the country and do stand-up. And I was like, Let me think about it. Okay. That's about how long it took. What the
0: fuck are you thinking about? I got to think about it. Bullshit.
1: Dream
2: come true here.
1: Yeah. So I left there and went to work for him and it was just great. Three years working for him. And then I ended up going out on my own. But Pat, he's so good about, you know, family and everybody that works there are friends of his in some fashion or family. He hired my son to run his YouTube channel. My son's doing great. Still works for him to this day. And, uh, yeah, it, I just kind of started this whole thing. And now I, I work for a podcast company. I'm kind of more in the true crime world now than I am comedy. I still do stand up, you know, as much as time allows, but for the most part, I put my investigative experience to use with, uh, resonate recordings, um, who puts out really big podcasts in, in partnership with tenderfoot TV out of Atlanta, Georgia, we got two out right now. Undetermined is number one in all of Apple podcasts of any kind and, uh, culpables in the top 10 still. Wow. So it's, it's really, my world came full circle.
0: We need to make, <laughs> we need to have a discussion. We have been discussing platforms now for a while. So, uh. Yeah. Talk yeah, to me. We, I guess well, we need to go to
2: work for Todd. That's yeah. What we need to Can we carry your Todd luggage
0: here? and, you know, go hang out? <laughs> I got to tell you, though, I, I've got to give props. My wife and I are huge Notre Dame fans. We're huge college football fans and K-State. K-State's going to play Bama. So go cats, uh, beat Bama uh, in the Sugar Bowl. <laughs> really? um, and, right. Well, but look, it, it, for you college football fans out there and everybody loves Lee Corso, but we also know Lee um, he's coming to an end of a career because you're 87 years old. You can only do this at that pace for so long. And I, I want to see him go out on top. And Pat is just a natural replacement to come in with the team. Cause he only started doing this like a couple years ago.
1: Yeah. To have that, there's no perfect guy to pass that baton to because Lee Corso, although very obviously very knowledgeable, was the fun part of the show. He brought the comedy there so who better than pat to take that place and i I, you know i had stopped watching college game day until pat joined and now it's like a rebirth for them it's so good because
0: herbie's a little stuff shirted desmond's a little full of himself you know and uh Um, uh, but, but I'll tell you though, but it's like Pat and him with that belt buckle and the t-shirt with the jacket and, the he has, he has got the, even though he played pro ball, but he, I think he was, he was designed to be in the college football area because he gets them. He understands the stories. He gets the crowd going when they're at game day. He just, he knows how to do it. And he was a legend at West Virginia.
1: Like he was, I was was getting ready to say, where
2: did he go to college at? Yeah.
1: Yeah, Around WVU, ears. and he was on the, the, the probably. I don't know if they've had as good a team since. Like he was on a really good squad. They should have went to the national championship. And as he would tell you, if he hadn't have missed a field goal, they would have. Uh, but you know, he had made so many. He was so great. But you know, and it's cool because as I prepare now, like okay, how I'm going? How am I going to live in this true crime comedy space for the next twenty years or so? I do have the benefit now. And that's why I say my my world came full circle, is comedy and radio and podcasting b- helped me be good on a microphone, right, and comfortable on a microphone. Working 21 years and all the different assignments I was privileged enough to serve in made me a well-rounded investigative mind, right? So now I get to be a combination of all of that. I get to bring all those things that all these skills I've accumulated for whatever reason. That's why you talk about. Like there's some kind of plan. Sometimes you don't know what it is, but it's happening. I think that was the plan all along so that I would be in the space, helping this great studio do these great true crime podcasts and, you know, help be a voice for them and offer investigative value and, and to their, their cases and make these things special. And actually, you know, we, not very many true crime podcasts get to actually make a difference in a case. And like we have undetermined out right now. And I think the reason it's number one is it's very investigative heavy. And we, we brought something to the table for police. It wasn't just, isn't this sad that it's unsolved. Like we gave them actionable things to use to bring this to a resolution. And I feel fortunate for that, you know, and I got to work for, Dave Portnoy, the the guy that started Barstool Sports, still runs it, genius. I got to work even more, way more intimately with my friend, Pat McAfee, who is a genius. There's something to be said for having to spend or getting to spend that amount of intimate time with someone who's a true genius. Now, Pat won't tell you he's a genius. You know, he's just, I'm a goofball. But he's a genius. He's he a knows.
0: genius. He's like Inspector Cluzo. Is he really a dumb shit like that, or is he smart like a fox? Pat mm-hmm. is not a goofball. He is a. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Hey, but and you know something. Real quick, I, I was going to tell you. You're talking about all these things. There's a great book out there uh, by Apollo Coelho, and um, you know, and he talks. There is a quote out there from Alchemy, basically, and it says, "When you want something, all the universe conspires in helping you to achieve it." So, like you said, these things that you want—I mean, who would have—if you would have said two or three years, or when you first started doing this, that hey, one day I'm going to be opening for Pat McAfee, and I'm going to be working with the guys from Barstool Sports—people would have thought you were crazy, given you some Xanax and had you calm the fuck down, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I would have thought I was crazy.
0: (laughs) But but look at where you are now. So you said that was one of the things. Was there a second thing? You said there was a couple things that decided, uh, you know, it was time to make this transition?
1: Well, one was I didn't want to die in some, you know, parking lot in the hood for sure, because I was getting older and that little, what I call a shootout, you know, was definitely enough to let me know I'm, I'm slowing down. You know, I, I'd been in some foot pursuits before that and pulled the hammy and I'm like, oh yeah, all right, just blew your hamstring, old guy. You're not, you're not built for this anymore. And just, you know, being slow enough, you get to a point, I think, at least I did in my career where uh, you reevaluate, you go from gung-ho, us versus them, cop mentality, especially when you work, I think in the drug world and you spend a lot of time with informants and you kind of have relationships with these criminals in some fashion. And you're like, you know, in a different world, we could be friends. Some of them, like, it's almost like that. And, you know, and I had family myself, who so would end up in prison. And I, I think my mind had gotten soft and I was, I didn't know how to not be in a tactical role. I didn't know how to just sit at a desk and calm the hell down. I always had to be out there in that role, but my mind was softened tactically you know like it was a bigger deal for me to pull my gun out than it used to be and the thought of having to end someone's life even though legally justified was becoming a bigger deal to me than it used to be and I think it was just the natural progression to bringing myself to where I am now it was all part of it you know I needed that mindset to get me to where I am now and now I'm way more like a I don't know. I, I like where my mind is now for doing what I do with true crime content. I have a documentary that I, my partner and I just sold that we're working on that has—it's a true crime story, but there's a lot of heart to it. You know, there was a this community that was affected by it that was ha- kind of left to its own devices to protect itself, and I'm seeing a lot more of the human side of crime, you know, and I think that was just—it was to a point— I needed the younger guy to do the job I was doing. You know, that's like kicking yeah. in the doors. At some point,
0: it's like, no, nah, th- that's that's the role for the younger guys. I want to pee like MacArthur and just walk up onto the beach and lay claim to everything. You right,
1: know? right, right, right. Exactly. And I'm sure you guys are finding yourselves because y- you know you're in this space now, and your your personalities and your podcast is doing well. The more and more you do it, it's kind of like you know we have a, a, a almost I think an obligation or responsibility to educate. Not only people to what cops do and what cops go through, but somewhat too to young cops that are listening to educate them where your mind's gonna be in twenty years from now. So maybe use that to your advantage now while you're young. I wish I could go back in time with the knowledge I have now and the mindset I have now.
2: And not to mention, you know, a lot of cops when when they get to the end of the career, they don't have something in mind. Yeah. You know, that's no exit strategy. Uh, they, just, they just think you just sit back and relax and, and, the work and comes they to end you. up dying. Yeah.
0: But you know something? We, we did an interview yesterday, um, uh, Pete Forcelli, um, and he actually had a great line. And I think this is one of the biggest lessons I wish I would have learned. He says, w- like when you're in law enforcement, one of the lessons he wish you would have learned he says, he gave the department 100% of his effort, but he should not have given them 100% of his time as well. You know, and that's the biggest thing when you look back on, and I think the biggest regret for a lot of people is goes, you know, working, and you know this too, when I was a detective, you get called out to a homicide, you might not see your bed for three days. You know, the the investigation takes priority over birthdays, over Christmas, over um, family gatherings, you know, and so it's kind of one of the things, how do you balance it? And I think, Two things, uh, two to three things normally happen. Either you get somebody just gets so depressed. That's why for too long it was taboo to talk about it. But suicides, the leading cause of death for cops, um, above and beyond felonious assaults, above and beyond accidents. Um, The other thing was it results in... Chemical dependency, drug abuse, drinking, alcoholism—you know, high divorce rates—and then, but then, some of the other people like you who figure it out. It's like, look, um, I'm proud of what I did, but you got to move on. There's life beyond the badge. You know what? What's next for me? And I think too few people, like to your point, Murph, start planning out what do I want to do when this gig is over. You know what's mm-hmm. next for me? Am I starting to get the skills now that I need? To move into the next phase of my life, of my career. And too often, like you say, they pull the pen and then they go, they look around the room and they go, now what the fuck do I do? Yeah. Right.
2: You know, and, and there's a lot of investigators, uh, state, locals, feds, whatever, you get experience in different fields. Which will lead to a career after law enforcement. It could be a polygrapher, it could be a financial investigator, it could be a smart ass on the Indiana State Police, who's a funny guy. I love it, you know. Well, I mean,
0: allegedly funny. We have not established those. Those. <laughs> those are facts, not in evidence, sir. Let's uh...
2: Oh no, those kids he was telling about. I love the I love the Taser show the Taser story. Kids way album things.
1: cop stories on Amazon music if you haven't heard oh, it. We're gonna yeah. pimp you out. So yeah, actually
0: let's talk yep. about that before we close up. Let's talk about where where you're at on this fabulous Invention, Al Gore's amazing internet. Where are you at all over this place? So give us give us your website, your Twitter, your Instagram, whatever it is you do.
1: Yeah, I keep uh my website is a one-stop shop. So you can find anything that I'm currently into or that I've had out in the past on there at and it's just toddcomedy.com T-O-D-D comedy.com. So all the podcasts I'm involved with that are out right now, that's on there. My comedy album's on there. You know, Anytime I'm touring and I've got like a stand-up date coming up, it's on there on the front page. Everything I do is right there just to try to make it convenient for people.
0: But one other thing before we go, close up here. I love your sweatshirt because I know exactly what that is. I was in the inaugural uh, Pennsylvania ride for Law Enforcement United. We rode from Pennsylvania, Reading, Pennsylvania into D.C. for uh, Police Week. And uh, one of the things we raised money for, it was Cops, Concerns of Police Survivors. So tell us about the sweatshirt you got on.
1: Yeah, this was given to me uh, for a show that I did on behalf of that organization. Um, Of course, I do those for free. You know, those are brothers and sisters and their families. And uh, we've all had people that have needed them, Uh, people in our law enforcement lives who have needed their services. And... uh, you know, I think for us, it's my favorite organization, law enforcement organization to work with. I have a couple friends on the board here for that. And, uh, you know, they, they basically step up to the play if for, for whatever reason something tragic happens to a member of our law enforcement family, they step in and, it, you know, because it stands for concerns of police survivors, cops. They step in to take care of the family who's left to deal with the tragedy and they provide financial assistance for things that are needed. They, they help you get counseling if needed, you know, it's just a great selfless organization ran by great people. And, uh, I can't, you know, if I ever get rich, they're getting a huge chunk of money from me right now they can get my time for free. Anytime they
0: want. wait a minute, you're hanging out with Pat McAfee and the guy that runs barstool sports and you're doing all that. What do you mean? You're not rich yet. (laughs) <laughs>
1: I just, you know i didn't stay long enough my son's rich i think because i can see his bank account because when he was a kid i had to put him on my chase app and you know how depressing it is to go to a, <laughs> a bar one night because you're out of work because of covid you can't do stand-up comedy and you got 67 dollars in your bank account and you're trying to decide what kind of dinner you can have that night and your son's bank account is in you know seven figures then you're like what Go get your own account, brother. Get off my shit. I'm tired of looking at your stuff. Well, no,
0: here's the way I would have looked at it. Hey, look, it's my account too,
1: so I think I'm going to have steak tonight.
2: <laughs> yeah. hey, so I can't I'm sorry. transfer just so, from just, it. Just so you know, I took a $1,000 loan from you. I'll oh, give it no. back. You don't
1: worry. It, it's so <laughs> tempting, you know, when he's got hundreds of thousands of dollars in there. I'm just like, he won't miss it. But, you know, my son would. There's a He is so meticulous. He's, more of a, he's always been more of a grown-up than me. Like on his 21st birthday, we took him out, me and all the Pat McAfee guys. And uh, yeah, my son ended up driving me home. Like he, he he stayed sober and responsible and had to put his old man to bed. My
0: God, that's what kids are forced to grow up and be responsible and take right. care of us. You know, it's like, yeah,
1: what else? Are, what else my daughter keeps for? saying,
0: just remember, I'm going to be the one pushing you out in your wheelchair as you're slobbering down the front one of these days. So take care <laughs> of me. I said, yeah, I'll do that. Well, hey, look, man, before we bring this to a close, first of all, this is me saluting you, first of all, for doing the great work that you did. But second of all, for having the impact that you do now, because look, as you know, too, cops, it takes a sense of humor to do this job. And sometimes it's dark humor, but you found a way to kind of transition it, you know, and do something healthy with it. So, the, And that's good. And I love the fact that you're doing it for uh, the concerns of police survivors and stuff like that. Um, those are things near and dear to a lot of cops hearts. So. There's us saluting you. And the other thing we're saluting you for is the fact that, uh, you know, you're going to have get Pat McAfee to have me on game day to talk about how the Irish are going to win this year uh, in the bowl game. (laughs)
1: pressure. I'll I'll put in a word. (laughs) Nobody ever listens to me, but
0: (laughs) I'll, I'll put in a word. Hey, Pat, there's this dumb motherfucker from originally from Kansas. Ignore him. Yeah.
1: God love him. He led me along for so, and I was not. Uh, I love sports, but I, I just, I'm not knowledgeable, you know, on rosters and coaching trees and just the the knowledge you need to be an analyst, like everybody else that worked for him was. But he didn't care. He led me along till finally he was like, "All right, I get it. Go, go be a comedian." Let us bring this to an end. But anyway,
0: I'm glad you said that because I love seeing what you're doing, and that's just me saluting you. Um, You know, hey, honor for you to come on our show and do this, and uh, just a, a fact. The other thing, Murphy, got to admit, state troopers are cool.
2: Oh, gosh. I, I, just, I don't think I can bring myself to say that.
1: Hey, Now, all of us can't have narcos in our belt, but, yeah,
2: we're okay. How did you see the poster back there? Is oh, that, I see you, it, yeah. Only oh, the biggest crime show to ever
1: happened. That's good for you, but yeah. you know what?
2: All right, I'll relent. You troopers, you did a hell of a job.
0: <laughs> all right, well, hey. You guys stay there. Again, this is us thanking you. Don't go anywhere. Everybody else, stay tuned for The Debrief. i tell you what. <laughs> First of all, I just told him, I said, hey, give me an intro to Pat. You know, give me an intro to Pat McAfee. You know, I just, you know, to, to have him say go Irish, to have him say game of crimes. So that dude is, I mean... Not only are troopers hilarious, but former punters are hilarious too you know well
2: you'd he'd, ha- he'd have to say, "Go mountaineers, that's where he was the place kicker for them, right,
0: uh, and the colts wasn't it the the colts too yeah i was I'm more into college ball than I am pro but man but but just but you take a look at what he did and how he transitioned in his plan, but I'll tell you what what was funny is he talked about how drunk he had to be to get up there that first time, <laughs> and it's like you got no problem standing in front of your buddies doing this, and it's like, but you got to get drunk to get up in front of people but
2: you know, and that's a funny thing about cops, man. They can, they can, they can entertain within the law enforcement culture each other. Especially if you're at a bar, they can get up in front of juries and and defense attorneys who are really turds, you know, and and recite facts right off the top of their head. But you ask them to get in front of an audience, uh, you, uh-huh. you know the last <laughs> the last class I took in college was public speaking because I hated doing it so much. And this is we're now into our eighth year. Javier and I on our our world tour. Of talking about Pablo Escobar. I, I love it. It's a blast.
0: Yeah, Pablo doesn't because he's room temperature. So He's sucks like
2: to a be snake. In. You know what a good snake is? A good snake is a dead snake. dead snake,
0: yeah. Oh, well, there's a couple jokes here, but we'll save those for later. Hey, guys, well, we hope you enjoyed that. If you did, head on over to Apple. Hit those five stars as well as Spotify. They've got it, too. It really helps us out. Look, and if you don't like the show, give us at least a reason why. Don't go on and give a one star like that turd didn't get. All cops are liars, and I don't like cops. I get it. Go post that on Twitter or something. But hey, look, help us out if you like. And if you have a legitimate complaint, fine. Let us know. We're, we're open to, as you guys see, we're open to improving the show, adding things. So, And thanks to you guys. I mean, we our format changed a little bit, but not what we were going to do. Um, we've added a couple different features. Why? Because of feedback from you. So we really appreciate that. Also, head on over to our website, Podcast.com, for more info about the show. We post the links about where you can find Todd and his comedy show, which... Um, you've got to go if you're in the area, man, just got to go do it. Find us on that thing called social media at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But make sure before you leave today, you go to Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes and sign up. Find out all the fun content we have over there on Patreon, the stuff that we're doing. And like uh, we said, we just recorded uh, our Q&A. We got some really zingers. We got some good questions. We got some... You wouldn't believe some of the stuff that's asked. And our rapid fire we get from Rick Jacobs, a couple other folks. You know, hey, rapid fire. I love that. Fun stuff. So make sure you guys got, get on over there and uh, do that. And Murph, I think we just uh, bring this to a close for another week.
2: Let's see. Just if you would, check out Todd McComas at toddmcomas.net. And then he also has toddcomedy.com. You want to check out his podcast. He's doing some really cool stuff right now.
0: Toddcomedy.com. And-
2: ToddComedy.com. You know, and and if you remember, he even uh, made some intros for us to see if we could uh, change things up a little bit. So check him out. Go see him in person. Thank you very much for coming and listening to us here on Game of Crimes.
0: Yeah, thank you guys once again for playing the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all and comedian-friendly, trooper-friendly Game of Crimes.